Open your Bibles to Matthew 7 as we come back to another very familiar passage, maybe one of the most quoted verses in all of Scripture, but unfortunately for all the wrong reasons, or as I should say, maybe misquoted or misinterpreted, misunderstood, one of the most distorted, one of the most isolated from all its surrounding context. It's a prohibition against judging. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Now, if there's anything that virtually everyone agrees on in modern culture is that they do not like the judgmental person, or I guess I should say in modern terms, the judgy person. Uh, To be labeled judgy is to be perceived as a critic of everyone, to uh, always be taking the higher moral ground above everyone else. In practical terms, you can be labeled judgy if you are just simply trying to give an honest evaluation of some situation, maybe some person's moral standing, especially if it involves religious opinions and religious uh, positions. Our culture likes to pretend that it hates these kinds of absolutes, especially moral or religious absolutes. I say pretend because one of the most glaring sins of modern culture is the tendency to have a double standard, a tendency to be, we might say, selective in where it wants to find absolutes and more permissive where it doesn't, especially to promote their particular agenda. But the popular mantra over and over again that we hear all the time is tolerance. There's tolerance taught in the education system. There are tolerance organizations, books and training on tolerance, all calling on us to express empathy towards all viewpoints, celebrate inclusion, celebrate diversity of beliefs and opinions, avoid anything that would be labeled as narrow-minded And ironically, one of the defenses for this popular understanding is quoting Jesus here when he says, judge not that you be not judged, as if somehow Jesus wanted to prevent people from making moral evaluations of anything. If you hold strong convictions or try to confront moral wrongs, You are seen as conceited and arrogant, unloving, and maybe even standing opposed to everything that Jesus is about. Even Christians twist and misuse this verse when they want to escape scrutiny, when they don't want to be sort of uh, called to account in their life. They use this verse to shield themselves from that kind of input from their friends or family, If they begin to waver in their lives, if someone's coming alongside of them, trying to challenge them, trying to press them, implying that somehow uh, they would be a guide to the blind or a, a light in the darkness, then they are labeled as judging, as violating one of the most basic principles of the New Testament, it's It's suggested. But really, is that the meaning of what Jesus is saying here? Is that really the way that we're supposed to understand this verse? 
Is it basic to Christianity? Is it basic to, to Jesus? Is it basic to the teaching of the Bible that you are not supposed to question the morals of another person, that you're not supposed to dispute with them about what is right and wrong, that you're not supposed to try to draw distinctions between what is wise and what is foolish, and you're not supposed to uh, advocate and recommend people to walk in what is wisdom. Is that really what this is all about? Well, not at all. In fact, that kind of teaching is nothing more than the worldly model of dealing with differences covered over with a religious veil by slapping on it some words of Jesus. It doesn't accurately represent Christ. It doesn't really uh, uh, accurately define, or I should say, to uh, doesn't d- interpret this verse accurately. It doesn't even really provide a genuine and true way for you to deal with the complexities of a pluralistic world. It just promotes a kind of superficial peacekeeping that papers over the fundamental differences that cause harm and destruction and hurt and pain within families, within society, within workplaces. It pretends that all of these differences are harmless, that immoral behavior doesn't lead to irreparable consequences, and that no one will be hurt. If we just don't say anything to anyone, then no one will have to pay a cost. But none of that is true. And Jesus is well aware of it. Sin wrecks lives. Foolishness blinds people. It leads them down paths of real destruction. The gospel warns them about that kind of behavior and calls the, the people back, calls us back, calls you back from that kind of sinful pathway. People do real things that hurt themselves and hurt one another. And Jesus wouldn't want to ignore any of that. He wouldn't want to pretend that any of that doesn't take place. Even though the world quotes Jesus about not judging, the truth of the matter is that they know virtually nothing about how to deal with these kinds of issues. The world is horribly broken. Relationships are horribly mangled. Homes are wrecked. Hearts are grieved. Minds are corrupted. The world on top of that is incredibly divided across political spectrums and religious spectrums within workplaces and in all kinds of parts of our community. There, there is no toleration of diverse uh, opinions, even though people would suggest that's what we should do. For all of its efforts, the world can only produce what we call the cancel culture, where if someone doesn't agree with or promote the perspective that you uh, uh, promote or advocate, all you can do is cancel them, destroy them, ridicule them, try to silence and censor them. That's the way the world deals with problems. It It gives lip service to unity. It gives lip service to not being what it perceives to be judgmental, but on the street level, sort of ground level uh, reality of life, people have an incredibly difficult time. I would say it is impossible for them to know how to dwell with one another in unity. It is an incredibly intolerant ungracious, unkind, unforgiving world. And you're naive to think otherwise. Just open your eyes. The world doesn't know how to deal with differences. The world doesn't know how to deal with hurts. It doesn't know how to, how to speak to someone else when their behavior is harming others or when it's harming themselves. But Jesus does. 
Jesus understands all that. He perfectly understands how to deal with differences. He perfectly understands how to talk to other people about strains and tensions, disagreements. Whether it's in public discourse or in private dialogue, Jesus is the master of communication because he's the master of the human heart. And so he understands better than anyone what the pitfalls would be that would inevitably lead to an eruption of conflict. And ironically, his solution is not to avoid conflict at all costs. His instruction is not to tolerate all moral perspectives and embrace all lifestyles as equally valid Jesus very much is an advocate of confronting error and dealing with sin, but he also understands that there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Or we could say it this way, he understands that in dealing with sin, there's a sinful way and a godly way to deal with those kinds of differences. This is really what this passage is about. It's about confronting error. It's about speaking to issues of sin and dealing with differences, but dealing with them in a godly way. And it gives us some of the most important principles that you will ever learn for dealing with sin between two people. It's not exhaustive. It doesn't contain every principle of conflict resolution that you could ever outline from the Scriptures. But if you can master the basic principles that Jesus establishes here, you will be well on your way to what God designs you to be as a peacemaker. If you can master the principles here, you'll be on your way to building peaceful marriages, on your way to building peaceful homes, peaceful churches, peaceful workplaces, peaceful communities. He gives us here, I think, four distinct directives for dealing with differences in a godly way. Four distinct directives for dealing with differences in a godly way. The first one, we could say in verses 1 and 2, is the call to take account of your own accountability. Take account of your own accountability. And you can note this kind of reciprocal principle that Jesus mentions in verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. You might assume that's some sort of tactical principle that you engage in with, uh, with people to try to avoid criticism. If you don't criticize other people, then they won't criticize you. So it's just all sort of it's all sort of the mechanics of how you work through interpersonal relationships. But, of course, we know that's not true. We know that you can refrain from criticizing other people, and yet that doesn't mean that they're not going to criticize you. That's not the way the world works. That's not the way communication works. Whether or not they do really shouldn't be a major consideration when it comes to how you deal with differences, how you handle the truth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. In other words, Paul's focus and his concern was not what the opinions of other people were. He was not dominated and and he wasn't sort of governed by a desire to please others. That was a very minor concern, a very small thing, he says, to him. His primary concern and our primary concern was and is and ought to be the judgment by the Lord. And in fact... Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has emphasized this over and over again with this kind of principle of reciprocity, sort of this reciprocal uh, um, uh, principle that, that our actions and our attitudes toward other people have this kind of reciprocal effect 
on our relationship to God. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? Mercy. Or he says in chapter 6, verse 14, just a few verses earlier, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we've seen this reciprocal principle already a couple of times in terms of our relationship with God. And now here Jesus is applying that same reciprocal principle to the issue of judging. And he's saying that we should refrain from judging others so that we will not be judged by God. Or in verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce... You will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, this is not necessarily talking about the final day of judgment. Just like back in chapter 6, verse 14, when he spoke about God's forgiveness, he was not talking about judicial forgiveness, the ultimate and eternal forgiveness that secures us uh, eternal forgiveness salvation and our place with God in paradise. What he was talking about is sort of the daily parental forgiveness, which doesn't threaten our eternal destiny that is secured for us by the sacrifice of Christ, but it certainly can threaten our intimacy and our joy and our sense of peace in our relationship with God. In this case, Jesus has in mind the ongoing measure of God's compassion and God's mercy toward us on a daily basis. And he's warning us that if you deal with others and if you hold them accountable to a standard of righteousness in such a rigid way, just remember that you are also accountable to God. And reflect on the fact of how you would want him to deal with you in your shortcomings. Now, if you have your Bibles, look with me over just a couple of books to Luke chapter 6, because Luke brings all this together in very tight fashion. In Luke 6.36, when he again uses this reciprocal principle in verse 36, and he says... Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. So you see this reciprocity going all the way through all of these things. Mercy and judgment and condemnation and forgiveness. And then he goes on and even says, give and it will be given to you. In good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And just notice in those few verses how Luke uses the word judge and also the word condemn. The word condemn is really a legal term for someone sentencing someone else to punishment for a crime. And it gives us some helpful insight into what Jesus is talking about in all of this because when he uses the word judge, he's not forbidding you from making discerning evaluations about other people's lives. And he's not promising you that if you set aside that kind of discernment that God himself is suddenly not going to really care about your life. That God isn't going to apply discernment or evaluation to your life. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about here is not the person who discerns and not the person who knows right from wrong or the person who knows good from evil or wisdom from foolishness. None of that is in view. People throw this word around with this implication that it's always wrong to pronounce someone else's actions as wrong. But clearly in Luke here, when Jesus is using the word judge, 
He's using it in the typical sense that you find it in all of the Gospels, which is the idea of inflicting punishment. Same concept as condemnation. This is the way you see it used in other passages throughout the gospel, this idea of inflicting punishment. So in John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to judge or condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In that context, the ESV translates the word judge as condemn because that's what it means. It means to inflict punishment. When Jesus first came into the world in his first coming, he didn't come in that first visit to inflict punishment on the world. That wasn't his purpose. His purpose was what? It was to save, which tells you exactly by way of contrast what the word judge means. Judge means to destroy It means to punish. It means to bring pain. And so back over in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus uses the word judge, he specifically has in mind this idea of condemning, or we might say destroying, seeking to destroy another person, seeking to inflict harm on a brother or sister, to tear them down to destroy them because of their weaknesses, to destroy them because of their foolishness, to tear them down because of their sin. That's, that's not your place, Jesus is saying. That's not the reaction that you would want from God, and that's not the reaction that you should have for others when they sin. It's very similar, by the way, to how James uses the word in James 4.12. He says, there's only one lawgiver... And judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You hear the way he's using the word there? He's talking about saving and destroying. Saving and destroying. And what he's saying is it is not your place to destroy, it's not your place to tear down. It's not your place to inflict pain on someone in response to their sinful behavior. That's not your role. You may believe it's your role, but it's just your pride. So when Jesus is forbidding judging, he's really forbidding that kind of destructive and disparaging speech. What he's really talking about is the kind of harshness that's intended to cut And to hurt, that kind of critical, hurtful speech that wants to do harm to someone else's reputation, to someone else's happiness, that wants to tear down their emotional state or whatever it might be. And the truth is that in your own life, when you come to give an account before God, when you're dealing with your own imperfections, your own weaknesses, when you come to God understanding that you have sinned and that you may need correction, you are hoping that God would deal with you in the gentlest way possible. Just like David, when he was confessing his sins in Psalm 51 And he was asking God to deal mercifully with him, even as God cleanses him, to restore to him the joy of salvation and not to crush him. So, when you are forced to deal with someone else's sin, the very first thing you need to do is take stock of your own accountability. The very first thing you need to do is reflect on the fact that you have a relationship with God that is governed primarily by God's mercy. By the way, Paul spells the same principle out in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual... Restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch 
on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, there's a close connection here between the fact that you could be tempted and then the gentleness with which you deal with a sinful, wayward brother or sister. So you're seeking to restore them, meaning that you have discerned that there is some sort of foolishness, some sort of sin in their life, and you're warning them if necessary. But in all of that, in all of your actions, in all of your demeanor, in all of your conversation, you are gentle. Like Christ says in Matthew 11, come to me, all of you who are laboring and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So when you come to deal with someone who is straying from the Lord, running from the Lord, it is a heavy matter And the last thing you want to do is to add some additional unnecessary weight because of your public shaming, your ridicule, your demeaning speech and behavior to that person. It's weighty enough what they have to already deal with. You want to come to them in the spirit of Christ, reminding them that the yoke of God The burden of the gospel is light and it brings rest and peace. You see, Jesus in his wisdom is telling you basically to realize that when you're dealing with sin in someone else's life, the situation is so delicate. The emotions are sometimes so frayed and fragile It requires a kind of delicate handling. This is the essence of what Proverbs 51 tells us when it comes to conflict resolution. A soft answer or gentle word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's simple. It's almost common sense. One of the key things that, that you have that that can de-escalate a situation that can can sort of foster the kind of dialogue and the kind of communication that's necessary is this gentle approach and the thing that produces the gentleness the scripture tells us over and over again is a reflection on your own weaknesses on your own accountability on your own need for mercy So there ought to be a gentleness in the way that you deal with the failures and sins of other people because you think about how you want to be handled by the Lord. That's why Paul says, keep a watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You could be in the same kind of situation. You could be on the other side of the table. And you know your own heart. You know your own sin. You know your own capacity. So take stock of that. Take account of your own accountability. Well, there's a second one, a second principle that's closely related to that first one, that first directive for dealing with these differences in a godly way, and it's found in verses 3 and 4. Deal with your double standard. Deal with your double standard. Jesus says it in verse 3. Why do you seek, excuse me, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye. So he's calling out your double standard here. You have a tendency, he's saying, to basically exaggerate the seriousness of your, of your neighbor's sins while at the same time minimizing the seriousness of your own sins. This is the tendency, I think, of everyone when they get into some sort of disagreement, some sort of conflict. The natural tendency when we disagree about whatever it might be, the life choices we make, the positions that we hold, even the religious dialogue that we might sometimes enter into, not to mention 
the patterns of behavior, the waywardness that we might find ourselves stumbling in. One of the hardest, one of the most difficult things for people to do in that situation is to take a hard look at their own sin. People are so ready to talk about other people's sin. They're so ready to give you the laundry list of what someone else has done wrong. And when you try to slow them down and stop them for a moment to say, wait, 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 let's just kind of begin with you. They may give you some sort of token Christian answer, but they're, you, can, you can see it in their eyes. They are eager to give you the rundown of their assessment of everyone else's wrong. Because in their mind, that person's wrong is glaring and their wrong is a mere speck. Jesus says you have it all backwards. This kind of double standard and hypocritical standard is what characterized the Pharisees and Jesus wants his disciples to avoid it. And so he gives this very memorable image of a log and a speck. The log here that he talks about being in your own eye, it's a word that was used for these massive timbers, was used to talk about the mast on a sailing ship, or even used to talk about this huge timber that the Romans mounted on a a piece of machinery when they tried to force their way into Jerusalem with a battering ram. This, this, this thing that was thousands and thousands of pounds. This massive, massive timber. Versus what he says is the speck. Literally, it's a piece of sawdust. A tiny, lightweight irritant that can lodge in your eye, but is hardly visible if people were even looking for it. In your eye. Again, the image is clear. There's a tendency to overlook your own sin, to rush past your own sin, which ought to be glaring, more glaring than that in your neighbor. You might exaggerate your ability to see your neighbor's sin or your friend or your spouse. You might exaggerate your ability to clearly see what their issues are. But in your own blindness to what's going on in your own life, it calls into question whether or not you can even see clearly. There's a double standard. And it is repulsive to Christ. You claim to see clearly, you claim to see beyond the surface, you might even believe that you can see down into the inner parts of someone's heart and mind, and you are so quick to construct the worst picture of their motives, to link together all of their actions under a cloud of suspicion as if they're all so calculated. You make you, you make all of their efforts to try to make something right. You just pour cold water on all that stuff. And you do all this stuff without any mention of the log dangling out of your eye the whole time. You can be as harsh with others in their failures as you are lenient with yourself. You don't realize it, but you're actually undermining your credibility. You wonder why people aren't listening to you. You wonder why they aren't responding to your rebukes or whatever it might be. Well, the truth is almost everyone's seeing what you can't see, this big, huge stake sticking out of your eye, these glaring inconsistencies and unfaithfulness and pride an unwillingness to humble yourself. They see the double standard and it begs the question, how good really is your perception of sin? You can't even see it yourself. The truth is we're far, off, far too often we are way more concerned with maintaining our spiritual image of competency, projecting our sense of spiritual completeness or authority or whatever it might be, we're way more concerned about that than we are actually helping someone else. Seeing the Lord sanctify them, grow them, 
mature them. So one of the important steps in conflict resolution is the recognition of how generous you tend to be with yourself and how harsh you tend to be towards others. And the implication is clear. Jesus is saying you ought to be able to see your own sins more clearly than you can the sins of others if for no other reason than the fact that you live with yourself, that you constantly see yourself publicly, privately, outside, inside, actions, hearts, motive. You're the one person who can see all that most clearly. You're the one who ought to see your sin more clearly than anyone else. And so you ought to be far more sensitive to your own sin than you are to the sins of other people. Which brings us to the third directive for dealing with differences in a godly way in verse 5. The need to confess your own culpability. To confess your own culpability. Or if if you want an alternative sort of point, you could say sizing up your own sin. You need to size up your own sin. If you want to have any hope of genuinely dealing with the sins of a brother or sister or a spouse or a child, a friend or a coworker, one of the first things you have to do is to get a true assessment of your sin. And with strong rebuke, Jesus says here in verse 5, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly how to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It was John Owen who said, no man preaches that sermon well to others that does not first preach it to his own heart. He who does not feed on and digest and thrive by what he prepares for his people may give them poison as far as he knows. For unless he finds the power of it in his own heart, he cannot have any ground of confidence that it will have power in the hearts of others. That is a keen insight. There are so many people who go around propping themselves, setting themselves up as the one who has all the answers for all of the problems of everyone else, and yet they have all of these glaring inconsistencies in their life as if they've never tasted the dishes that they're serving up to everyone else. It's a serious question. If you can't even see how to overcome your own sins, how do you expect to help anyone else? How do you expect to counsel anyone else? All this undermines your credibility. It undermines your effectiveness. You haven't even learned to battle sin in your own heart. So you're not really in shape to help anyone else battle sin. Now, please take note for just a moment. This verse makes it obvious. Jesus is in no way prohibiting you from talking to someone else about their sin. He's not interested in shutting all that down. He doesn't want to prevent you from from the necessary conversations. But what he wants to prevent is the harsh and hypocritical approaches from a heart that hasn't been softened by confession. God very much intends you to engage other people, other sinners, when they begin to stray from the faith. Uh, faith. Whenever you look at the book of 1 John, his dominant theme in that book is love. And one of the things he returns to again and again is the necessity of warning someone about their sin. It's one of the fundamental expressions if you genuinely love someone. A person who doesn't warn their friend about their sin, a person who doesn't talk to their children or their spouse about their sin is someone who may have any number of different motives active in their heart, but their motive is not love. It might be self-preservation. It might be gaining the applause and the approval of other people. It might be being on someone else's best terms. You may have all kinds of motives, but you can't be loving towards someone if you see them on a path of destruction and you're not willing to deal with it. So Jesus has never have you remain quiet if you see your 
brother or sister straying, but what he does forbid is unmerciful, hypocritical, egotistical efforts to deal with sin. The kind of self-righteous judgment that characterized the Pharisees, whose primary concern was not to help other people get out of their sin into holiness. Their primary concern was to magnify their own righteousness, to come out on top, to be looked at as better than everyone else. So throughout this whole passage, Jesus isn't talking about the person who properly evaluates the conduct of other people and then having done their own self-reflection grapples with and deals seriously with their own sins and then with a sound understanding of the scripture and the process of sanctification takes those insights lovingly to the brother or sister. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the person who has no regard for the tenderness of the situation of their friend or loved one And worse than that, has no sensitivity and regard for their own glaring areas of unrepentance. Now, this is a very important step then for us to realize. Is that if we're going to have any kind of success in being used of the Lord as a counselor, a teacher, a leader, or just an accountability partner, just a loving husband or wife. If we're going to have any hope of being successfully used by the Lord in any of those endeavors, we're going to have to constantly have our heart softened by confession. See, Jesus is really talking about a two-step process here. First, deal with the log in your own eye. Then, he says, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brothers. He wants you to do that. He wants you to do that. And he understands that these steps are necessary. Again, this kind of produces the gentleness that causes people to sort of drop their defenses that, 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 that communicates empathy as you connect with people through your own weaknesses, that generates the kind of sense of trust that allows people to open up their vulnerabilities. All those things begin to happen when people see you confessing your sins to begin with. Now, the sad reality is That while this is a good and practical step in dealing with differences, it doesn't mean it's always successful. It doesn't mean that you'll always be able to break through. In fact, that would be naive. It's certainly God's desire for you in all of your disagreements and differences to begin by confessing your own culpability, but it may not necessarily always be matched by humility on the other person's side which is why Jesus gives us the final directive there in verse 6 for dealing with differences in a godly way, which is simply what he says, avoid antagonizing the scornful. Avoid antagonizing the scornful. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs. Now, what he's talking about, when he's talking about what is holy here, what he's talking about are the principles of righteousness. What he's talking about is the truths of God's word. And the reality is there are always going to be some people who simply disdain the word of God. No matter how gentle, no matter how kindly you are, no matter how delicately you present it, there are always going to be people who are going to reject it. And Jesus uses two images here to depict them. First of all, he calls them dogs. Do not give dogs what is holy. And when he's saying that, he's not talking about the chihuahua that sits on my wife's lap every morning as she drinks her coffee. 
or your lab who wags his tail ferociously when you come to the door every day and smothers you with licks or whatever it might be. That's not what he has in mind. What he's talking about were the wild packs of mongrels who roamed the outskirts of villages in those days, filthy, mangy in their fur and full of disease as they foraged the trash piles. People didn't domesticate dogs in those days. They were wild animals. And if they couldn't find enough to fill their stomachs in the end of the day, they would look for someone to attack. They wouldn't hesitate to attack you. Jesus also speaks about pigs. These would have been the wild hogs that would have roamed the countryside, also foraging for scraps on discarded heaps of trash. Uh, The Jews didn't raise pigs domestically either because pigs were unclean animals to them. They were forbidden within the Scripture to eat or even to touch. And so the only pigs you would have found in Israel would have been wild pigs. They would have been ferocious beasts. They were despised not only because they were unclean, but they were despised because they were dangerous. And their wallowing in the mud just sort of accentuated their filthiness in the mind of a Jew. So Jesus pictures a person standing in front of this pack of pigs with a bag of pearls. And the animal's looking at him uh, in hunger. And he empties out, pours out his pearls in front of them. And they pounce on the pearls as if they're some sort of maybe nuts or beans or peas or something, but as they bite into them and realize that they are hard and tasteless and inedible, they grow angry at the person who poured them out and enraged, they turn on you and begin to tear you to pieces. You may remember Peter uses these same two images at the end of 2 Peter 2. He pictures those who profess to be Christians or profess to be leaders They boastfully claim, he says, to have understanding. But while promising, Peter says, freedom to other people, they themselves are slaves of corruption. So they think they understand freedom, they think they understand life, they think they understand the way to joy and happiness, but the reality is that inside of their hearts, they're slaves. They are enslaved to their own corruption. And he goes on to say, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state becomes worse for them than the first. And then he adds this, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And Peter immediately compares them to dogs who return to their vomit or pigs who go back to wallowing in the mud. In other words, these are people who have been thoroughly exposed to the truth, but they find those sort of disgusting and destructive patterns of behavior in their life more attractive, more appetizing than the pure way of righteousness. And so they're like a dog licking up his or her vomit. And the point is clear. There are some people who reject the truth, not because of a lack of knowledge, not because of a lack of exposure. They simply reflect a heart that has become so hardened to the truth, a conscience that has become so seared as with a branding iron that it no longer responds to spiritual input and stimuli. In a way, it's kind of a defense mechanism for them because the Word of God pricks their conscience and brings them pain within. So what they have to do in order to dull the pain is they have to harden their conscience and harden their conscience and harden their conscience. 
And so it's wise, Jesus says, not to continue antagonizing them. In fact, by continuing to provoke them, you might even be causing them to harden their hearts even more. The timing isn't right right now. Now, please understand, he's talking here about people who know the truth. He's talking about people who have heard the truth and been exposed to the truth. He's not suggesting to walk away from every difficult evangelistic opportunity. I still remember a 17-year-old boy, myself, walking around the streets of Pensacola, Florida with my buddies, encountering a group of street preachers who were trying to share the good news of Christ with us. And I was a hooligan. And so we gathered around them, literally circled around them and began to shout and ridicule them, mock them and call them names, laughing our way down the street as we left. I'll never forget though, although I was surrounded with seven or eight of my closest buddies, I never felt so alone and empty as I walked away from those people. So the, the ridicule and the, the vitriol you may receive from an unbeliever isn't necessarily a reason to immediately give up on them. But what Peter is talking about, and what I think Jesus is talking about, are those people who have seared their conscience. They've heard the truth. They know the truth. And they're refusing to respond to the truth. There comes a time to give it a rest. There comes a time to step away and let them go down their pathway of destruction until maybe they come to their senses. Look, the Lord doesn't want us to ignore sin. He doesn't want us to pretend like these things don't exist or they don't do harm to relationships and families. But what He does want us to do is to deal with them out of the mercy that we've been taught in the gospel. And that is the gospel. That no matter what your sin is and no matter what your prideful rebellion has been, the Lord is always ready. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And if you're tired and weary and empty from your sin, turn to Him. And you will find rest for your soul. You will find rest through the gospel. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're so grateful for this very helpful and practical passage, convicting, and yet we need to hear it, Lord. May you bind our tongue and slow us down when we're so quick and ready to criticize others and haven't been softened by confession. Break our hearts, O Lord, by the foolishness of our own way. Cleanse our tongue from all that is harsh and biting and prepare us to be instruments of reconciliation by the gracious and merciful work you do in our hearts. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.